I'm Joe Zane. And I'm John Good. And this is Michigan Mobility Scene. Welcome to Michigan Mobility Scene. I'm Joe Zane. As a Michigan native, I've always been passionate about my home state and its future, even while I lived away during my service in the Marine Corps. As an IT professional with a background in cybersecurity and automotive, I know that being competitive in the world of future mobility is key to Michigan's economic future. My co-host is John Good. Hi. Hi, Joe. My name is John, Hi, and I grew up. I also grew up in the metro area, but I actually moved to Singapore after college, where I lived for six years. Uh, I was an urban planner and transportation planner there for the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore. Uh, and I just returned to Detroit about a year ago uh, in April uh, 2018. I'm the principal consultant at a small firm called Spatial Crossroads LLC, where I've consulted with the World Bank, May Mobility, and Mobility E3, among others. And um, we would like to welcome today Annalisa Esposito Bloom uh, from GM. And uh, Annalisa was present at the creation and served as the director of communication for Maven over three years before moving to another communications role within GM just last month. While she was there, Maven grew from an idea to an innovative car sharing platform that serves over a dozen cities across three countries. Annalisa, welcome. Hi, thanks guys. Thanks for having me. So to begin with, uh, we want to start by digging a little bit into the past uh, Mm -hmm. of Maven and, and its origins. So we know that about three years ago, a lot of stuff was happening. Uh, early 2016, Maven arose from a combination of a lot of different uh, programs across GM. Mm-hmm. Uh, in January of that year, GM invested $500 million in Lyft. Mm-hmm. They acquired whatever was left over of Sidecar. They set up Maven as a new entity within GM. And then only a few months later, acquired Cruise. So there seemed to be a lot of th- threads coming together right at that same time. First of all, how did you find yourself to be the communications director at this influential part in Maven's history? And then second, how did it feel to be there? That's an amazing question. I think way back in about 2014, we started having questions about how millennials engage with cars because the data was abysmal. You're starting to see trend research that millennials don't want to purchase cars. They aren't getting their driver's license. And then you're trying to root cause that. And we had worked with a couple of different third parties, including Viacom, MTV. You know, that network came out and said, hey, we know millennials. And we said, all right, let's listen. And while the approach that that team necessarily took wasn't wrong, the insights that they were getting wasn't leading back to car sales. And so we started asking really critical questions. Is it that they want a car that looks like a pink pod? The answer is no. Is it that they want something that comes with free parking? Yes. Okay, what's that insight then? They want free parking. They want frictionless ownership. Okay, do they really want ownership? The answer is no. They just want to use a car when they need a car. How do we take the business we have and right-size it to the need? And so these conversations started happening, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. And at the same time, you have our product design team has a organization within that looks 15 years out ahead of regular product development. And they're coming up with the same conclusions. You have the Chevy team that's now really interested in how do we, how do we reach this core audience that's going to be the largest purchasing power within not only North America, but globally. And what can we offer? And we all kind of came to the same place at the same time. 
Now, at the time, you were the Chevy communications manager. I was on the Chevy team, working on small and electrified vehicles. Mm -hmm. And my remit at the time was, you're a millennial, figure out what they want, Um, (laughs) which is hard because you're a test sample of one. My experience is not the experience of the whole community. However, um, being there and listening to it and being able to ask like high-pressure questions and starting to tabletop and starting to root cause, you began to see it's not that they're averse to being in a vehicle or driving a vehicle. They like that. They want the ability to set terms as they wish, but they don't want any of the burden that comes with when they don't use the car. They want to be able to pay for it, use it, put it back and be done and not pay for insurance or parking um, or maintenance or they don't want any of that friction. They just want to be able to go where they want to go, how they want to go. And how do you provide that? And so enter Maven. Um, We had everyone in the company pretty much on the same page at the same time, um, which is rare in any large organization, and um, decided to go forth with, at that time, a pilot which was called Let's Drive NYC. It was run by Chevy. It was only in New York. It was a residential-focused program. We put a couple sharing cars in a luxury apartment complex and say it was part of your amenities, and it did really well. From there, we then said, hey, we can actually we can actually capitalize on this. This is an actual business. It's not a pilot. And if we do it right and at scale, we think that this could be a revenue generator. And uh, the company believed in us and set us up as a startup within GM with every resource available. Back in my days at Chevy, I found that I really was drawn to the mobility work and really drawn to the millennial piece. And I would spend hours after work on my own time just really getting immersed into the psychology and the demographics and what are the challenges and what's the urban planning environment doing and how are we from a policy perspective taking a look at this. And so I raised my hand to anyone who would listen and said, hey, I know we don't have a job that looks like this, feels like this right now, but if we ever do have an opportunity that even feels remotely like this, I'm all in. Please, please let me have the chance. Um, So some of it is just kind of forecasting the future you want. Um, to anyone who would listen, and apparently someone did. Um, and when the opportunity arose, I was selected. Well, that's great. Yeah. Now, now at the time uh, when you took this on, Maven wasn't even Maven. No, correct? Maven wasn't Maven at the time. I recall my first meeting. We were told it was the Urban Mobility Team, and they were called Urban Active, and that was a design t- um, term that was coined from the Advanced Design Team. Um, and they had a lot of passion and a lot of vigor, and we had everything from car sharing concepts on through what that future could look like from an urban mobility standpoint. And within three days of being on the team, there was a decision made that we should focus on car sharing. It is the most available to us. We have cars. We have the technology through OnStar. We can do this. Let's go. Um, And I remember on day three, we kind of came up with um, we had a branding exercise, we selected Maven, there was the team that was on the Urban Active Subcommittee that was then um, brought over to be part of Maven, uh, Julia was announced as, Julia Stain was announced as Vice President, so all these things really started to accelerate uh, in, in really short order. So that was December, and in January we were announcing our LLC and that we were announcing car sharing as a business. Um, so it moved, it moved really, really quickly. Especially compared to maybe other initiatives that you 
are familiar with? Yeah, or? GM's not known for speed, right? It's a big ship. It's hard to turn quickly. So I think it was a bit of, for me, like being a GM employee for, at that time, I had been there for a decade. So to have seen the company move so quickly and to capitalize on so many opportunities all at once was invigorating. It was awesome to see like everything firing on the right cylinders and just a natural yes. Um, and so that was, that was proof positive to me that if we can do that at GM, just about any large company, if they have the right vision and the right talent can pivot and change and do so in such short order. I loved that they gave us room to succeed in terms of the support that they provided from the enterprise, but also a little bit of distance from the enterprise where we could work and iterate and do things a little more quickly than the rest of the corporate culture currently allows. So that was that was fun to watch. It was fun to be a part of it. Now, right around that same time, a lot of uh, several other initiatives were going on. So mm -hmm. GM in, uh, invested five hundred million mm -hmm. in, in Lyft. In Lyft and then acquired Cruise just a few months later. Mm -hmm. How much visibility did you have to that? And as part of the Maven team, uh, was that part of your umbrella or was it kind of off to the side and somebody else entirely was doing it? So because we were, the idea had been quick to formulate, but the other principles which allowed Maven to quickly form had been part of the structure for some time. You had mergers and acquisitions looking at opportunities. You had advanced design looking at opportunities. You had Chevrolet. You, you had many groups. And at that time, you really had M&A kind of taking, um, taking the biggest bets and taking the biggest leads. To the extent that we were, we were aware, but we were, at least from where I sat, I had no visibility into the decisions that were made at that time because I, I was relatively new. Um, but it was part of the larger vision and the larger strategy. And I, I think that the bet that Dan Ammon made was, was a sound one um, to learn and to be in partnership and collaboration with you know the likes of Lyft, especially at that time. Now it doesn't seem so ambitious or kind of avant-garde, but at that time, that type of partnership alone signaled that we were here to do things differently. So I think even... Even if nothing came out of it, just the fact that we were at that space and time and ready to listen and engage, to me, signaled a big departure from traditional GM. The story of Lyft and its whole history, I listened to it at uh, mm -hmm. in a podcast called uh, The Acquired Podcast, where they went over the history from its founding to the IPO. And that was a really critical point in their history because they were locked in an epic battle with with Uber, um, <laughs> yeah. which, which kind of brings they this. still are. Yes. <laughs> yes. But now they're on much uh, stronger footing. Another subject. But I uh, want to bring up their third competitor at the time, which uh, was Sidecar. Mm -hmm. And uh, GM did acquire uh, what was left of Sidecar. That's right. How did the Sidecar team integrate into what was then Maven? How much did you interact with that team? And... What else, what other insights do you have about that process? I think when we started Maven, you're starting from a complete blank canvas and you're making some assumptions as to where you think the business is going to take you. And at that time, it was still open aperture and you're taking input and trying to build kind of what the business should look like. And acquiring something like Sidecar kind of gave us a little more oomph when it came to 
their technical background, right? They had the IP on car sharing. And so just to even hear how they thought about things, rap how they would rapidly iterate. And our tech team is good, right? We took the best talent from OnStar. We have people who absolutely know how to sprint and sprint well. Um, but just to hear their thoughts on when do you take a risk? When do you stop tabletopping? When do you keep going forward because you know it's just a great idea? Um, so even the technical capabilities that we gleaned through the sidecar acquisition, I would say it was more like a little bit of that culture, learning how to quickly iterate and how to quickly come up with like a cultural yes and then work on the tech then next. So I thought that was a benefit. Um, the challenge therein was that they stayed on the West Coast and I do think there's something to be said for real-time engagement, right? There's only so much that you can do, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. This is just my opinion. But, you know, there's something to be said of sitting at one table and, like, sweating it out together and, and trying to figure it out. Um, and I think sometimes that can be a challenge if you're not co-located. Mm -hmm. um, but I know I'm kind of old school there. I just like to see people. Makes that, sense. Yeah. I, think that, I think that's right. Um, I, I guess... Uh, from the sidecar acquisition, um, what kind of insights did they uh, bring to the team that you maybe had not thought of in terms of how do you deploy, how do you choose locations? I mean, was there something that kind of came uh, from, from that team? I would say less on the actual deployment of locations and probably more on the energy side. Like the... Mm -hmm. The benefit of working with the team that's in Silicon Valley is that they are Silicon Valley and they don't come with the same preconceived notions. They don't come with the same checks and balances sometimes, right? They're thinking idea first, let's go, let's go, let's go. Whereas those of us who've been in the OEM space, I think are a little conditioned sometimes to say like, okay, and the safety check is, and the cybersecurity check is, and this and this and this, and have we thought of? And so... To me, the benefit was less of what they were pushing us to do in terms of like deployment, because at, at truth, it was it was Julia Stain and, and our team that said, you know what, if we crank this up, if we deploy not as a pilot in New York, but as a viable business in 15 cities by the end of the year, we got this. This is a business and people will pay for this. Um, and that didn't necessarily come from the sidecar team verbatim, but I think that energy that we all were like inspired by, like, let's do this, um, I think was like a natural fit between our teams. So having built your team, having set uh, out, wh where was the plan from there? Wh wh what were you looking to do and what was your timeline? Yeah. I, and I'm speaking on behalf of the entire Maven team, right? The, the opportunity to sit there and consult on, on communications and public relations quickly became something very different once Maven decided to accelerate. If you were at that table, you were a member of that launch team. And it didn't matter if you were operations or PR or you were marketing, you were all hands on deck. And there was a specific meeting that I, I will never forget this meeting where Julia just sat right up and stood up and said, you know, X'd out the plan and said, that's not what we're doing today. Today, we're going to go big or why are we here? And it was this moment that I had in my chest where I was like, yes, bold as hell. We've got this and she's right. And if we do this, if we can, by the end of the year, accelerate into markets like Chicago, 
like uh, Atlanta, like San Francisco, like LA, like all of these places that all of the research has told us is ripe, both in terms of demographics, you know, changing attitudes towards ownership, high index relative to phones and using apps and they're banking on their phones. So we know that they would have some level of comfortability in addition to looking at lending rates and trends and cost of parking, like we had all this data that we had been collecting for a long time. And at a certain point, your intuition just kicks in and you're like, it's LA, it's San Francisco, it's San Diego, it's this, it's this, it's this. In terms of the partnerships we already have, these all check green boxes, let's go. Put together the plan. What can we actually do? How quickly can we get cars? How quickly can we stand this up? And then from that kind of euphoria, then you start thinking more about, well, if I have cars here and car sharing, why can't they be used for, say, delivery? Why can't they be used for food delivery? Why can't they be used for Amazon? And then you're starting to think and going on all cylinders there. And hey, if we have cars, why can't they be electric? Where could we have infrastructure? Then you're looking more closely at markets like San Diego, San Francisco, and LA. And that to me was like the big tipping point moment where I was like, oh, we've got this. Like everyone around the table, instead of like the traditional GM, which would have been like, oh, no, we were like, oh, yes, <laughs> we are here to play. And she's right. If we can do this and go big because it's critical mass that matters here, she's not wrong. Let's do it. And I, I don't think I've been part of a moment like that. There's a handful of moments in your career where you're like, yeah. And that, that for me is one of them. Like that moment around the table, that staff meeting on a Wednesday at like 9.45 AM, where she just got up and was like, nope, this is not what we're here for. It was like that slow clap moment in the movie. And you're like, yes. So yeah, that, that to me was like the, the pivotal, pivotal moment when, when we knew that Maven was not just a pilot. This is a business. Um, I guess taking a step back, I mean, that it's, it's all it, it, exciting, really, yeah. um, to hear it. But, you know, the, the fundamental business of car sharing by the hour, mm -hmm. uh, by the day, you know, Zipcar has been doing it for, for years, right? Yeah. For a long time. I had a membership in college. Um, I like their service. So ultimately, what did you see that Maven was going to offer? Uh, what was the competitive advantage? And... How did you think you could leverage GM or, I mean, how did you just relate to them as, as kind of a pioneer in the field? And yeah, I, I think going in differentiation was absolutely key. And we knew that we didn't want to be the dumping ground for cars that couldn't find a home elsewhere or, you know, cars that are coming back post rental. There mm -hmm. are ways that we could have done this, but the idea was tapping into this core truth that this group wants something that feels like ownership and aspirational ownership. They don't, can you just get in and out of a car for as cheap as possible? Yeah. But what if that experience could be in and around the same cost in a car you'd actually want to drive? Leather, heated seats, heated steering wheel, um, access to the music that you want. And so with that, we said, we have a fantastic opportunity to take new cars and put them in a platform and provide access in a way that has not been granted to this group before. And if we do this right, and if we don't plaster the car with big old Maven signs and 
make it advertise that this is rental, that this person is borrowing a car, which doesn't feel good when you ask people, but that it's just access to the car that they would own if they were able to own. And so that was a North Star for us and became the point of differentiation in addition to just making sure that everything went through the phone, like trying to do cards or RFIDs or this, that, and the other. We're like, you know what? You've got a phone. That should be all you need to reserve, to access, to do it. Um, and if it's not that level of service with this level of product, then that's that's not what we're going to be. So, so you were really trying to position as a premium product absolutely. vis-a-vis Zipcar. Yeah. In, in the beginning, absolutely. Um, we wanted to convey to this core belief that we had of this of the millennial demographic that we were targeting we knew from the research that they don't they don't necessarily well they're very cost conscious they don't necessarily want to be seen in something that's cheap it's why rent the runway so successful it's why all of these other areas in terms of rental like luxury purse rental all of these things exist for a very specific reason and it's for that instagram photo that makes it look like you're living your best life and we we know this so tap into it. For $9 an hour, you can get a car that's gorgeous. And that looks like a car you'd be proud to pick up your date in or your parents or like roll up and be in the Instagram photo. And I know that sounds really, you know, base and, and like we're coming to the lowest common denominator, but it's a core truth. People look at themselves in the mirror before they leave for work in the morning. People are still really concerned about the look and the image that they have. And so if they're showing up in a rental car, that doesn't really affirm that you're living your best life. So and for us, that was the natural point of differentiation. And because we work at an OEM, uh, getting new or nearly new cars, not a problem. <laughs> there are <laughs> lots of cars that we can tap into. Um, and that, that to us was the advantage. Now, uh, during this time, beside the people who worked at Sidecar, you were hiring away from other Big name companies like Zipcar, mm-hmm. I, and as well as I believe Google, Starbucks, and- Google. We were able to attract a lot of really, really influential talent um, because we had a vision and we were full. We were at full throttle, right? So that's that's an exciting place to be, and I think it attracts a certain energy and a certain type of person that t- typically would be at a Starbucks or a Google. Um, and the relationships that we had with some ex-Zipcar um, employees, I, I think they were drawn to those early days of Zipcar, right? Like the same day that you're parking a car, you just washed it. Now you got to like go and bolt a sign on a wall. And two hours later, you're meeting with the mayor. That kind of hustle spirit really, really attracted a lot of good people. That's how we operate. We're very lean. So... One day you're doing something glamorous, like on a podcast. The next day you're slumming it in a parking garage, like trying to like, you know, <laughs> clean a car that came back as as a car will come back sometimes. So it's a lot of fun. And I think it, it brings people who have a can-do attitude. And um, I really enjoyed all the people at Maven because we were all kind of cut from the same cloth a little bit. Now, on that note, the leadership of Julia seems to come through in the way you talk about those early days. Could you oh, speak yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think... I think one of the benefits of bringing in someone who had outside experience through Alcoa, through Goldman Sachs, but also had been on the GM side through M&A, meant that she had the right balance of external perspective but internal application. 
I think sometimes it's really hard to bring in someone who knows nothing about our structure in an environment that depends on selective utilization of key assets and allies that aren't at Maven, but at GM. So you kind of have to know a little bit of where do you go, what specific person do you ask, how do you ask, um, in addition to knowing I'm, I shouldn't go over there to that person, right? Like there's, there's complexities in any organization and having that institutional knowledge like Julia had, I thought was really instrumental to our success. And she made sure that when she created the Maven team, that she chose from a blend of external people who were new to GM, people all the way down the spectrum to GM lifers who launched, you know, OnStar and who had storied careers so that you had a good balance on the operational team as to like, all right, this person wants to go fast, now operationalize it. How can we go fast given the structure we're within? I, I thought she was brilliant at that. Well, and I, as someone who's worked at large organizations before, like the Marine Corps or FCA, I know yeah. how stakeholder management and understanding the internal office politics, such as it is, can be a real advantage in terms of actually getting something done. Yeah, that stakeholder management term is key. And, and I think to ignore that reality, I think, is, is, a, little, is a little unfair um, because you are trying to get things done and you have many stakeholders that you need to keep apprised, even in an environment that's a separate LLC that's seen as a startup in GM, you're working and leveraging other teams like legal, um, like taxing, right? These are great assets that we don't have to separately fund, but you do need to work within the system in an appropriate way. And I, I think that was actually our strategic advantage. There's no way we could have moved that fast without the benefit of being part of a larger organization, at least in my opinion. Seeing it in real time, I was like, this makes a lot of sense. And the cool thing was everyone back at GM was like, yes, I want to help you, please. Right. They, they got their nine to five job and they're still like volunteering to help on Maven because they bought into the vision. They saw the energy and they saw something different and believed in it. So I still see that like you could ask anyone not on the Maven team if they want to help out. And, and we've never had a problem with someone providing counsel or actual hands on the ground. Um, you got a lot of eager people at GM who just want to do the right thing. So I have a question about product management. Mm -hmm. So where Maven is today, there are several separate product lines. Yep. You can look at Maven Gig, mm -hmm. uh, the peer-to-peer -peer aspect, which yeah. is part of the overall mm -hmm. experience, but separate in terms of where you look at uh, right. where supply comes from. How did you guys go about in trying to fulfill a con consistent vision, but take advantage of market opportunities uh, in the three years from the time it was uh, envisioned to where it is today. Yeah, I think evolution is inherent, right? And we knew that we would be an organization that would be nimble and fluid and kind of pounce on an opportunity as presented. When we talked about the early days of Maven and going in with the product differentiation via Zipcar, that was, hey, we're gonna have a premium product. You look to where we are today with Peer, I can guarantee within a certain, a certain spectrum that your car meets specific standards as a peer owner. But can I guarantee that you did the upper trim level? No, I can't, right? That's the benefit of peer is that I'm using your car, but also the takeaway is that like I've also now let go of some things. But what we learned in the process, in the journey, was that there are certain things that the audience considered premium 
that we all agreed on, right? In the Venn diagram, we're like, yep, you see this as premium, we see this as premium. And then there were some other things that we thought were premium over here that we got excited about, like heated seats, that in the end, the customer was like, I don't really wanna pay for that. I'd rather have this experience where I can use more cars that are closer to me, that are more available, that are in the price range that I want, and I wanna use this truck over here, um, and I'll let go of having a heated steering wheel if it means that I can go use that truck. And that was a very natural evolution. There was a, a guy on our team, Peter Kozak, who in my opinion is like the grandfather of Maven. It was, he's been on this beat for a long time. He retired recently and uh, is doing quite well. Um, but he narrowed in on that peer opportunity on like day one. He's like, if we do this right, you have idle assets doing nothing, and if we build the platform, they will come. And he was right. So we had the North Star of Peer from the inception, but getting from where we were with the Maven offering, you know, first starting with a residential offering that was a premium asset um, that was seen as an amenity, then moving into city open car sharing that took it out of a high-end amenity and into more of a democratic offering, then moving into gig, then moving an evolving city into peer. These were steps that were part of a trajectory and a plan. But as with any good business plan, you have options A, B, and C. Um, it just came with really listening to and observing what the customer was doing. Because until you had that data, it was really hard to know how to iterate. So our data analytics team is fantastic. Um, I really can't say enough about the team that was looking day in and day out at the data and the behaviors. And it wasn't just like numbers on a board. You have X number of people who are reserving over X hours. They were insight driven. And I, I think that's really where we, we then harnessed that energy and then created products as a result. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it sounds clean, but it was it's always messy, right? Because you're like, here's the data, and here's what we have, and here's the on the ground, and we can dial this up or dial that down. Like, what does it look like? But until you test things, until you can beta test, you could tabletop this all day long, right? We could science this all day long, get the numbers. But until you have something live and see if someone pays for it, you don't really know. Well, and the iteration is hard enough when you're dealing with something like software, but I imagine when you're dealing with <laughs> these fleets of automobiles, assets, yeah, it's going right, to be that different. That require plating, that require maintenance, that require someone to touch them. So to your point, like when you're talking about a sprint in a software environment, this is a different thing. These are tangible, tangible items. And then the other funny thing was when we started Maven, we're like, yeah, we'll bill for this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we had customer one. And customer one wants to pay us. We didn't at first know how to tax or bill. So we're like, oh my, someone call up someone in tax, like let's rally. Um, but again, you think you know everything and you think you know, we got this retail piece. We, we know how to, how to build software, we'll get this done. And then day one, rental one, it's like, oh, oh my, we forgot. Uh, how to add in tax in the billing. Oh, wow. Someone figure this out. Um, so again, there's a lot of a lot of good knowledge that's applied, but you can only tabletop so much. You have to get out and do. Well, I guess um, 
during the growth process, was, was there something that really stood out as unexpected um, in terms of, you know, either a city that was more successful than anticipated or you had to kind of recalibrate your, your deployment? Um, you're, I mean, you're recalibrating on demand. I would have to say just personally what surprised me because I operate from a place where like, I trust humanity. Like I like people. I give the benefit of the doubt. I assume goodness. There's a lot of fraud. There's a ton of people who are not operating from that same perspective. And you know that going in and you build for it. But to see some things in real time, you're like, wow, there's, there's a lot going on here. And how do you train a customer care team to now be able to identify who has a problem, who's gaming the system, stolen identities, or... right? Like, it, I mean, it ran the gamut. Um, and so there are days where you would walk in and kind of get the lowdown from the from the operations team, and you're like, "So when is happy hour? Because you guys need a break." <laughs> um, but it that part, I think, just looking at humanity through that lens, I was like, "Oh, this is new to me." I don't. I I didn't think going into this that we would need to have um, that much dialogue and that much planning relative to what happens when a bad actor enters, right? Like, and you know it's going to happen, and you account for a certain percentage. But we were like, oh, okay, feels like NCIS today. Like, this this was new to me. Regarding the markets, I've looked at the different places that uh, currently have Maven. There's a pretty strong concentration here in Southeast Michigan yep. between Detroit, Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. Flint. I noticed that. Uh, yeah, we have some cars out there. And I think Warren was also included in that, yes. naturally. Was it just a matter of proximity, or is there something else that uh, being in Southeast Michigan kind of brings to the table? Well, what, I, what we liked about launching in Ann Arbor is that you have a Tier 1 research campus that's geared towards learning. Um, and you have people that want to be a part of something larger, and you have millennials who can't park their cars, right? So you you kind of have a natural spot of which to launch from, and it, it happens to be perfectly situated for us. Uh, that proximity, I think, is invaluable. Again, there's some things that you cannot observe unless you're on the ground. So having a place like Ann Arbor within proximity to us was a tremendous gift. Um, and then Detroit, even though we are the Motor City, we have some of the highest rates of insurance in the nation. It is, in some ways, it's easy to own a car because you have a lot of land, you can park it somewhere, but those other factors relative to getting a loan or insuring the car are just as high as they are anywhere else. So you have a lot of those other pressures. In the suburbs, a little different environment, but in the urban space, it's it, it's pretty similar. So. We're blessed in that way to have proximity to two learning environments that allowed us to glean very quickly what works and what doesn't. Um, but then you get into places like Los Angeles and Chicago um, that are, are a little different in terms of their composition, their makeup, their demographics, um, their price points that then accelerate, really, that ability. Um, what you're seeing in terms of like Warren and Flint, that's that's the influence of peer, absolutely the influence of peer. Wherever you are, now I am. So that's that's great. And you happen to be in an environment in Southeast Michigan where you have people with two, three cars in their household just sitting there while their kids are off to school. You have more opportunities, I think, in a 
city like Detroit, um, where other places may have already factored out the ability to own multiple vehicles, that would probably constrain your ability to put like one or two cars on the platform. So I, I'm trying to keep an eye on the time, and I want to kind of demark this as uh, more of a discussion about where Maven is right now as mm -hmm. opposed to the, what, what brought us to today. Um, and kind of building off what you were talking about regards to uh, Detroit and Detroit's current experience, uh, to timestamp this, we're recording in uh, April of 2019, and just yeah. the, the past couple of weeks, uh, there was an agreement announced that Maven would be able to use some Detroit City street parking mm -hmm. that is normally reserved for municipal vehicles. Yep. How would you characterize your relationship or Maven's relationship rather with the city of Detroit and how is that going to position your for the, position Maven for the future? Yeah, I I definitely feel that having public private partnership is the only way to do this. If we go in as General Motors acting as General Motors and don't sit down and listen and engage to the cities that we're trying to prov provide a solution for, we're doing this really, really wrong um, because it's not just trying to secure a parking spot. It's trying to get to a point where culturally we can start to accelerate sharing because at the end of the day that helps resolve congestion, it, it helps resolve access. Um, I think the greatest good that we have is providing access to underserved communities, in my, in my personal opinion. And if we can do that right, we can really change lives. Um, and that only comes with understanding what the community needs. So part of that is sitting down with, um, you know, you've got De Laverne, you've got the team over in Detroit, you've got our team on the policy side, um, and the discussions have been super robust. And it's not just GM that they're talking to, and we love that, right? Please bring in M-City. Please bring other people to the table because we have a small piece. But if we can work collectively on a vision, then we're all better off. So I, I think so far it's been really strong. Um, we've been engaged in a partnership for for a while now, um, and that will just continue to evolve. Um, but I do, I strongly believe whether or not it's Austin, Texas, that has been a wonderful partner, um, and other cities that our, our policy team has worked directly with, um, it first starts with listening and then saying, hey, we can start small, we can go big, where is it that you would wish us to be? But again, if we just go in and buy some parking spaces and think like we, we're engaging with the city, that's not the right way to go. So another kind, uh, point about the current uh, place of Maven. So mm -hmm. as the uh, businesses evolved, you also have different competitors. We initially yeah. talked about Zipcar, but now as peer-to-peer -peer becomes more of a thing, there are companies like Turo mm -hmm. or even uh, other peer-to-peer -peer sharing services like that are brand-specific like Tesla. You yep. are, Maven is expanding into uh, other companies beyond GM. Yes. How do you see the, that evolving and where do you see Maven fit within the competitive landscape? I think, and maybe I'm a little biased, I think it's really hard to directly compare Maven to anything that is currently out there right now because there's elements that are one-to-one -one comparison with Zipcar, there are elements that are one-to-one -one comparison with Turo. Um, and if we double down on the sharing and look towards, you know, as we've, we've talked about previously, and, and nothing to announce, but we're always looking like, how do we amplify sharing of any asset? There's nothing like that right now that looks at it from a platform perspective, at least that I'm personally aware of. So, 
you know, you can't compare us necessarily to Ford Smart Mobility either, right? Because we're we're operating in a very different way, um, at least by this timestamp. Who knows what's coming next? But I have no crystal ball. So in my mind, if, if we leverage this right, we can be competing in a lot of very critical spaces with a platform offering that should be nimble enough for us to be car sharing at the same time that we're peer sharing and then allow that growth to happen. So I'm, I'm excited about that, but at the same time, it makes it really difficult to have conversations you know, contextually about like, what's your growth? How do you measure yourself against others? Well, we don't really see anyone else in the space like we are. And that's a good thing, but it also is a challenge when you're trying to explain what it is that you are and you're doing. So, so in this context, I mean, of a kind of rapidly changing competitive landscape, um, and the big news, of course, is that, that Julia uh, um, left the company yep. in January, right? So um, how has that affected things at Maven? Um, what does that mean for the future? Yeah, I think, you know, Julia's departure um, was one that was personally driven. It's hard to be commuting from New York for a long time when you have a child. And, um, you know, there are some challenges in that. And I think, you know, working with her... Um, Maven grew tremendously. We grew tremendously under her leadership. But I think Seagal, who now is the current head of Maven, brings a very, very global perspective. She's smart. She has managed uh, GM projects of uh, of greater complexity. Not to say Maven's not complex, but Mm -hmm. she can, she is, she was the right choice for where we are now, which is going from rapid growth to figuring out how do we make this viable and how do we how do we capitalize on the next step, which is evolving sharing. So I think I really, really am impressed by her. I think it's a tremendous opportunity though to take a step back and say, what is it that we we really want? And what is it that we think we can actually accomplish in six months, nine months, 12 months? Is it to GM's benefit to continue to have peer sharing? I think yes. Is it to GM's benefit to continue to explore non-GM vehicles? Is that the right answer? I think right now is the perfect time to stop and ask some really specific questions about what they want to do next. Um, And so I currently see a lot of energy as to don't look at what is, but look at what could be. And let's make sure that we're we're driving towards that. So I've been really impressed by the team, by Seagal's leadership, I'm excited to see what comes next, um, but I think a lot, a lot to come. That really plays into, or is a good segue into our next question, which mm-hmm. is, where do you see the future of Maven? Four um, to five years down the line might be a little bit far, but like, I think there's a lot of potential there. But I want to get your perspective. You know, it's so hard to think of something like Maven longitudinally because you're an on-demand product serving on-demand needs and should the need of the consumer change, right? I'm predicting that things are going to stay the same, that people want to share cars, that somehow, you know, gas prices stayed the same and, and everything, all the other variables stayed the same over the next five years. Personally, just, just speaking on behalf of me, this idea that you can take an asset that you spent some money on and share it to someone who needs it, like a an infinite lending library. I think that's amazing. And if we could do something like that, I think we're addressing so many social ills 
in terms of access and in terms of storing goods or when you continue to look at everything that is applying pressure to the infrastructure that exists today, if we can take and better utilize our assets from cars to tractors, I think that's a fantastic place to start. And in my heart, that's where I hope Maven evolves and becomes like this platform for sharing. Um, so I know that's that's a little like pie in the sky and a little um, kind of a little fairy dust, but there's a part of me that really does believe in that vision and that mantra that if we, if we share better, um, we will have less congestion, less emissions, um, less cost, and I, I do think it will lead towards, you know, a lot of a lot of people having access to things they currently couldn't have before. But then, a generation of income that was previously unattainable, like passive income generation. I think if we can unlock that for millennials and and beyond, I think we'd be answering a lot of a lot of big questions um, that have nothing to do with cars. Yeah. So, that's so like, it's that's the same principle. Same principle for the other sharing economy companies, totally. you know, Airbnb, um, other companies, other platforms that take underutilized assets. Absolutely. When I saw that IKEA was even looking at sharing IKEA furniture, <laughs> that's when I knew, like, we are at peak wow. sharing. Yeah. Right? This is not something that is built necessarily for sharing or long-term use. And yet there are people <laughs> who are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to take that bookcase for the two years that I'm in grad school. And then thank you next, right? And I mm -hmm. will have a plan for how this is no longer my problem. And that to me is is really incredible. I do think we're at a sharing tipping point. I think culturally, as a society, I, as business people, I, I find myself not having to argue the point as much anymore. Ruin seems to be like, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. So, and they're seeing it in the ways that they're making money or engaging in Airbnb. So I'm hearing that Aside from the different core business areas, peer-to-peer -peer is where you really see the growth. I do. I, I really do. When I look at idle assets that are sitting there, that are your number one or number two expense, just sitting in a parking lot or sitting in a driveway, when that car is accessed maybe 4% of its time, this is not sustainable. It's not. We know it as an OEM. I think everybody intrinsically knows this. We cannot continue to have assets that sit idle when everything you own is now in question as to its ROI um, or the space that it is just taking in a parking area that is likely to cost you money, right? Like the, these are hard questions. I think people are now, through the use of technology, are a little more insightful as to what things actually cost um, and are asking really tough and challenging questions about everything they own. So I, I see that. Now, I think that leads naturally to another question, which is how does the landscape change once these major assets that you're purchasing are autonomous? Yeah, that's, that's the big question. And what is the rate by which autonomy actually is realized? Um, to me, and I'm, I'm just speaking solely independently as, as myself, there's there's a lot of utility that comes in an autonomous vehicle that can be more utilized, right? If this thing can drive safely and go from point A to B to B to C and, and continue in this infinite pattern and loop until it needs to charge. Um, and if I'm seeing the behaviors over here, which are, I don't really need to own it. I don't even really need to drive it. I just want to get to where I want to get to go without having to touch another person. And that's the insight. Then this feels like it's, 
here in a space that is post-ownership. So does that mean that there needs to be an element which is fractional ownership? Is it sharing? Is it ride sharing? What is it? But to me, it doesn't necessarily feel like the majority of people are going to be in a position where they want to or can't own. That's not to say that ownership of autonomous wouldn't be feasible. There will be owned autonomous, in my opinion. Um, but it feels like sharing and ride sharing have a natural place in an autonomous application. So in, in many ways, I feel like my take on where Maven is going, it will be well poised for that transition from a natural ownership uh, attitude to a fully shared economy where you can take advantage of that point where people are still buying autonomous cars and oh, have yeah. a fleet of your own to be able to... Uh, Even if you took up Maven, insert sharing mode here. If I'm smart about this and I get a small fleet of autonomous vehicles and I deploy them on platform 24-7, what return can I actually have? Now we're talking about micro-fleet ownership. Now we're talking about, and, and you could, if we wanted to, you could look at the peer application of Maven and do this with non-autonomous cars now. Get a micro-fleet and run them and it could pay for the car you actually want. Like. So when you take those applications and even apply them to AV, I tend to believe they could be one-to-one. -one. But I also don't know what this AV is going to cost when it's deployed, when it's coming out. So like I'm, I'm making some assumptions here. But if we, can, if we can get the insights on sharing right, if we can figure that piece out, in my mind, that's a strategic advantage. Because we now understand how the consumer behaviors would adapt in this environment. Maven, insert, insert thing here. If you can figure out sharing, I think you'd have a competitive advantage in AV. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. But now, uh, there are a couple uh, kind of loose end uh, questions that, uh, about the future that we wanted to ask. Now, John, um, if you want to touch on, you lived abroad in Asia and Singapore in particular. So if you want to go well, ahead and ask. Yeah, I think... So autonomous vehicles are mm -hmm. um, one part of the future, and we know that Maven's also been expanding internationally. Yep. Um, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, Canada. Oh, Canada, <laughs> that's right. Um, it is international. Of course, just over the river. <laughs> um, how do you see that evolving? Um, it, obviously, a different regulatory environment, yeah. different uh, even usage patterns. Do you think that's something that Maven will continue to focus on? I think when we look at the data and the research, there's a certain part of you that has to check your bias and say, like, hey, is sharing just a U.S. thing? This is a, not, absolutely not. If anything, we're kind of late to the game as others are far more sophisticated in sharing in, in any and all assets. And, and cars are, and it's cheaper to operate cars here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And from a regulatory perspective, there's no question. So I see tremendous opportunity in global growth. Um, I really think the question is when and how and what markets do we feel if we could align on future deployment of, you know, again, if I'm looking back to Mary Barra's vision and you're telling me that we're looking at a future that is zero congestion, zero emissions and zero crashes, could there be a way to accelerate that vision through strategic placement of these sharing areas? And I would 
I would probably argue that that would probably best serve the enterprise. But again, like that, that takes money and that takes planning. So I think it all comes down to the vision and, and what's next, but, um, but sharing is not a North American phenomenon. Yeah, there's, in my opinion, there, there would be fertile ground. And, and do you think um, in different deployment environments, I mean, usually it's not, this is just one mode of many, of mm-hmm. course. Um, uh, most cities have a, have a complement of public transit yeah. and other, other ways of getting around. How do you see those working together? They have to work together to, to assume that we would just have this standalone environment that just allows you to get a car. You've now ignored first mile, last mile. You've now ignored what happens on a sunny day and you chose to walk. You've ignored everything else. And at this point, it, in my opinion, is a self-serving enterprise. And if we can figure out how do we, from first mile to last mile, serve your needs consistently, and if your needs are today, you want an Escalade because you have a big presentation and you have to bring artwork and you have to do this, that, and the other thing, and an Escalade made sense to you today, we were there for you. But two days later, you needed an e-bike we were there for you. And if there's a way that we could get into something that already exists that you trust, that's to me is the secret sauce. But how do you get there? Um, and I think that's going to be the perennial challenge for any of us who are in the mobility space is like, how do you seamlessly make this work so that when you wish to rent, when you wish to ride share, when you wish to use a bike, when you wish to use public transit, it just worked. And your payment worked, and it, yeah, it seam, was just seamless, seamless payment. Holy Grail! Like that to me is is the right place to be. Um, I don't see a pathway yet for any of us to be there right mm-hmm. now. Um, I think we're all still evaluating what is it in the mobility space that we can actually bring that adds value that that we see as a viable business. And so I think we're kind of myopically looking at kind of the channels. Just from where I sit, I haven't yet seen anyone other than maybe Google Maps kind of bring together elements of what it looks like to think holistically about your day, your time, your financial obligation, your complexity to get from point A to point B. I'm hopeful that with AI, we could get to something like that, (laughs) but I, I currently don't see it in existence. I don't, do you guys have Uh, like a... No, I think, I think that's right. It, I think... People are converging on this mm-hmm. multimodal future, but it is still an open game. Oh, we've been talking about multimodal for as long as we've been having this dialogue about urban mobility. We started with a concept that was multimodal. And again, you just have to narrow and say, all right, what can we actually do with the assets we have and the technology we have? But this idea of multimodal to me is like, it is absolutely holy grail. If we can, if we can figure that out, then... That's the secret sauce. And I, I think that ultimately, the, I think at some point in the future, you're going to take out one app and you won't even care who gets you from point A to point B. I couldn't agree more. And I know I probably, that's not what as a, a citizen of General Motors should be saying, right? Because I want you to be <laughs> like, hey, you should get my app. But listen, we are so inundated with people trying to take our time that I'm only now going to trust a certain number of apps. And the more you can funnel in through that app, the better. Um, And you even look at places like Facebook in terms of how they're handling digital publishing and and some of the requirements. And now you have like apps 
popping up because they can no longer be in the Facebook feed, which, which I think is against kind of what my expectation as a user is. I just want it in one place. I don't have time to click on four apps. I just want it here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you also see like behaviors such as, you know, there was news recently that um, more and more students in high school are asking for like Grubhub deliveries to come to their classroom. This idea I that, that I can have morning. what I want when I want it, when I need it at the price point that I expect is not going away. You, you just described capitalism. This isn't it's not going to change. It just means that for the first time ever in the palm of my hand, I have something that allows me to have news and Amazon packages and everything I want to happen all in real time with absolutely no friction. So this idea that like anyone would not want to have one-stop shopping for mobility, uh, no. I, I, I tend to be brand agnostic on that, to be yeah, honest. I think, well, I think reducing friction is a... It could be a, a subtitle for this episode. That's, that's really There's a lot it. of ways you could take that. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's it. it. And uh, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be GM. Maybe she, GM should be the one to create that multimodal app. Oh, wouldn't that be a wonderful world? Like, I think there's a lot of us at GM who are like, let's do it. Um, but the reality is there's already some trusted partners in that space. Like when I think of the place where... Something like this would make a lot of sense. I'm thinking of, you know, the the apps that I already trust. You mentioned Google Maps. So. To me, that, and they're already integrating with Uber. Like when I look up my time today to get here to walk to this WeWork, on it, it gave me a few different options, right? It told me I could walk, I could take the queue line, I could take a bus. So there already are spaces by which this dialogue is happening. And if if we can be mindful of the inclusion in that, I think that's a powerful thing. There's always conversations going on with all sorts of other companies. It's not to say that you know we're the first to have this idea, but I think going from the idea to the implementation is is a completely different thing, um, and that takes a lot of a lot of courage. Like I also look at in dash infotainment, right? How long have OEMs had this like? twist and pull as to like who gets to own that space. And if I'm thinking OEM centric, I don't want to let that go. I don't want to let that go for a lot of reasons, safety, cybersecurity. Um, but also this is prime real estate. I don't, I don't want to let that go. But at the same time, when I think about it from a user perspective, doesn't it just make sense for this to run Apple CarPlay? Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. It's the most convenient I've had, uh, convenience I've ever had with totally. my uh, with my cars to have Apple CarPlay. I'm a massive devotee, right? So I think there's there's going to be this tension in the interim as we figure out how that works, and I don't see that resolving anytime soon. So we're kind of coming to the end. I, I had um, two questions left. Yeah. One, I, I saw this really interesting article from last November where um, uh, Julia was interviewed and and was asked about where. Uh, Maven was going and she mentioned something along the lines of like it could be IPO'd so I, I don't know if you remember this or whether that was taken out of context <laughs> but I, I'm kind of curious just more generally where do you see the future of Maven within the structure of GM and then I guess um, with uh, an eye toward time once yeah. you've answered that uh, what are there any other things that you want to kind of bring up or to wrap wrap things up yeah I think it's always what what startup doesn't dream of IPO, right? This is what keeps us up at three in the morning when we're working more hours than we should, 
and everyone thinks of your potential. And I think that that comment reflects that Julia and those of us who've worked at Maven see unending potential for a product like this, for a service like this. Um, we, we feel in our core, this is the right thing to do. And I, I think General Motors as our parent company also agrees because they continue to support us. It's hard to forecast though in a space like this that is so iterative what that future looks like, right? And it's, I think if you look at the data and you, you can look at the trends, this is the future. This is how people wish to access. So I, I think I see a really long-term opportunity for sharing. Um, I think though it's hard to just constrain that into one thing. Um, but I, I do see Tremendous potential for Maven, tremendous potential for sharing, and if harnessed well, could really, really set General Motors up for what is to come. So I'm, I'm really excited for the Maven team. I, I think it's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal um, exercise in listening to the customer, building a product to win, and iterating and creating things on, on the fly that have purpose. So I, I think there's tremendous tremendous amount to to learn well i think that's probably a good place to, to wrap thank you so much for coming i yeah. feel like we could have talked for another yeah. hour so, <laughs> so uh, maybe we'll have to, to do, do that again. sometime yeah anytime <laughs> absolutely well thank you so much uh and for those out there listening uh this is michigan mobility scene we hope that you tune in next time whenever that might be <laughs> okay thanks, thanks a lot